Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed. Today we're going to be looking at the prophecy of Zechariah, and in particular chapter 12. This particular class was given at Pakuranga in Australia. And it describes how Israel regathered will dwell safely in their own strength. It's a prophecy. However, through the nations of the world will invade Israel to destroy them. The Lord will intervene to deliver them. Jerusalem will be reclaimed and the people of Israel will acknowledge their divine deliverer and repent, resulting in their final redemption, leading to the time when anyone who wants to go up to the kingdom of God on earth will have to grab the skirt of a Jew and say, take us. What a remarkable turnaround of events on how the world sees the Jewish population, God's chosen people. Well, this class is 47 minutes long, so I won't keep you any longer. Hope you enjoy it. And if you have any comments or you'd like to leave us a message, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Bye. Zechariah chapter 12 really is the beginning of um, a section versus chapter, chapter 12, 13 and 14. Um, chapter 13 being a flow on from the events in chapter 12 and chapter 14 being a deeper exposition or additional detail about the events in chapter 12. So I'm not going to stray into anybody else's chapters. I'll stay as best I can in chapter 12 for this evening. This uh, particular section, chapter 12, really focuses on two key phrases. The phrase, in that day, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We find these phrases um, throughout chapter 12 and into chapter 13. The phrase, inhabitants of Jerusalem, occurs in verse 5, 7, 8, 10, and chapter 13, verse 1. Um, in fact, chapter 13, verse 1 really belongs to chapter 12, so, so we'll cover a little bit of that. Um, and the phrase, in that day, occurs in verse 3, 4, 8, 11, chapter 13, verse 1, and in verse 4 of chapter 13. But these first two verses um, really are a prologue or an introduction to these, these three chapters. We read there, and I'm reading from the King James Version, the burden of the word of Yahweh for Israel, thus saith Yahweh, which stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling and all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And so that verse two is essentially the introduction or the, the, the scene setting, I guess you would say, for chapter 12, 13 and 14 as, as the prologue. Now, it's interesting that he uses this, this phrase, the burden of the word. Um, that, that word burden there has an interesting interesting meaning it means to be a tribute or um, the cost to carry or porterage so what we're being told here is that israel is going to be given a burden that they're going to have to carry and we're also told that jerusalem is going to be a burden to the nations and so we've got this interesting comparison between these two burdens because these following chapters are very severe when it comes to the implications for the nations. 
but they're equally severe in respect of Israel as a nation as well. It's got the idea of a harsh reality. This is the harsh reality that's facing Israel. Um, it's got the idea of an impending doom. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the idea of a doom, but the seers or soothsayers would pronounce a doom upon a person, and that person would carry that that fear of these impending events um, being outworked in their lives. And so the same idea is being presented in this first first one. But he goes on. And he makes another point here. Where he says, "This is this is being spoken by Yahweh, who stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth." And the point of that statement is to say that this is set in stone. This is an unavoidable consequence. These events are going to happen. This is the all-powerful God. And we find these phrases come up throughout Scripture where God refers to himself as the creator. And when we find those, those phrases, the context is this is going to happen. It's unavoidable. It can't be stopped. You know, the one that's set in, in the heavens, the planets and the stars and the firmament, all the things that rule the day and the night, the one that set that in place, he's pronouncing the statement. He's pronouncing this doom. The one who established the foundations of the earth and created the very, very fabric of the planet, he's pronouncing this doom. But he's also the one who created the spirit of man within himself. So, so the very things that motivate the very thinking of man has been been created by God, the capacity to think, and God can influence those things. Proverbs says that it's not in man to direct his steps. And so God's basically saying that these events are going to be outworked and there's nothing anyone can do to prevent these events from being worked out. Now, what is his plan? What's what's the events that are going to come to pass? Well, he summarizes them in verse 2, that he'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling and all the people that are around about. Um, the Hebrew has the idea of a cup of reeling or a cup of poison. Um, we find a similar idea picked up in Revelation where the the Catholic system is given a cup of the wrath of God and she's made to drink it. Same, same concept. It's a cup of poison. And it's going to be delivered to all of those who come against Jerusalem to lay the siege. And it's interesting that it highlights that it's a siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And so this tiny little country in the Middle East is going to be overwhelmed and surrounded. Uh, and we find that the people are going to be, uh, have war waged upon them and that Jerusalem itself will fall until a point when Christ returns. So it's almost as if the victory has been achieved by the northern aggressor, and now that's at that point that Christ returns and delivers them from that uh, that attack. And we might wonder why is it that God wants to bring all these nations down on Judah and Jerusalem? You know, what what have the what have the Jews done? Well, you know, we we have a fondness for the Jewish nation. We see them as a as important in the context of the hope the promises given to the fathers. But we also need to realize that the nation of Israel is as bad as every other nation on the planet. You know, there's no difference to what happens in Jerusalem, to what happens in New York City, to what happens in Los Angeles, to what happens in Sydney, to what happens in Auckland. You know, they're, they're all part of that Sodom and Gomorrah system. They're all very much tied into 
the evils and the wickedness that are that are perpetuated throughout the world and so as much as the jews are the people of god and that god has a special purpose with them a great number of them he's very very upset with and a great number of them are going to perish in the battle of armageddon which this section really is um, a discussion about so coming then to verse three we read these words and in that day will i make jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people all that burden themselves with it will be cut in pieces though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it and so he's really picking up from verse two and expanding um, the point now this phrase in that day isn't a literal 24-hour period so it's not like it starts at 6 a.m in the morning and all all these events culminate at 6 a.m the following day he's talking about a period of time that he's, he's looking at that there and the period of time actually runs if i can get my slides to work there we go this this idea of in that day occurs in a number of places throughout scripture zechariah as we've seen but also in isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 17 and 20 and ezekiel 38 verse 14 and 18 and Joel 3 verse 18 amongst amongst others but I've just sort of pulled those few prophetic occurrences just to help build out a picture of the judgments of God that are going to be in the earth and so these events proceed or preceded by Israel dwelling safely and we find that from Ezekiel 38 verse 14 and 18 um, we also find that Jerusalem is a major problem or becomes a major problem which is kind of interesting when you think about all the challenges that we face you know we're talking about covid and the pandemic just just before the class but you know there are other major issues with societal challenges um you know, poverty has increased during the covid um pandemic um financial instability and financial fragility in the nations but despite all of these apparent huge problems the major problem that is going to become apparent is going to be the city of jerusalem so it's kind of a peculiar thing that that of all the things that could possibly cause people to be concerned and worried it's actually the city of jerusalem which is going to be the major problem um, and so so we find and, and that that's occurring today we see that today and we're going to look at that a little bit uh, tonight we also find that this day in that day um, encompasses the the European Russian invasion or the Russian European invasion of the land of Israel down to Egypt um, we also find in this chapter results in the destruction of Israel and that's also picked up in Daniel chapter 11 where we were told about the northern aggressor pitching his tabernacle in the holy mountain but it's also about salvation and so we're going to look tonight at how these events are really going to pave the the way for the salvation of israel as a nation that that god is going to intervene in these events and rescue israel from certain destruction and that results in the repentance of israel and and their rejection of their idols which is what we read a little bit about in um in chapter 13 and it results in a fountain being opened up to the house of david for for cleansing and for the forgiveness of sin and so this idea of in that day is, is a period of time which encompasses the period of the the events of armageddon and then the redemption and salvation of israel as a nation so it's not not just a uh, 
a 24 hour period. But I did want to look at, at this particular quote because this really highlights what God is going to do or, or why he's doing it, what's motivating God's <coughs> intervention. Isaiah chapter 2, and we read these words, Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from dread, from the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Yahweh Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty. For all that is exalted, they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men will be humbled. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. So that's our phrase again. And the idols will totally disappear. That's what we read about in chapter 13 of Zechariah. Men will flee to the caves, into the rocks, to the holes in the ground from, from the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to shake the earth, that's Zechariah chapter 14. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to overhanging crags from the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So, so what we find in that quote is that God's contention with the nations is their arrogance and their pride. And notice it's all men, all the proud men. So he doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm going to deal with all the arrogant Gentile men. He says, anybody who is arrogant and proud, those who hold themselves aloft from others, they are the ones who are going to be humbled and they are the ones who are going to flee. Men will flee to the caves, he says. And so that's both Jew and Gentile. And so God has a contention with with both groups. And the victor here is going to be God alone being exalted. And so you know, if you, you think about the way Israel conducts itself, they're actually a very proud nation. You know, and, and they've got, you know, some some crowing rights you know they've done some they've done exceedingly amazingly well considering such a small nation that they've managed to carve out a modern democratic state you know in the middle east and surrounded by desert and surrounded by enemies and they're very technologically technologically advanced and very very smart and very very capable individuals and yet their arrogance is that we did this ourselves nobody's done that for us we've been successful because we're so brilliant and yet God is going to contend with them as much as he's going to contend with the nations. And so I guess the question for us is whose side are we on? Like where are our loyalties? Are our loyalties with the nation of New Zealand or the nation of Australia or with the nation of Israel or are our loyalties with God? Because it's God alone who is going to be exalted in that final day. And so he says there that he'll make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. The idea of a burdensome stone there is the idea of an encumbrance, something that slows you down, something that is in the wrong place that can't be moved, something that you want to drop, something that you don't want to have to, to contend with. You want it removed. And, and it's an offence. And it's interesting that Jerusalem is an offence to the nations as Christ was an offence to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel. And, and God's going to use Jerusalem to break the nations. He's going to break the nations upon Jerusalem. Now, why is Jerusalem so important? What's, you know, why, of all the cities in the world, why does God choose Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is critical to our hope. In fact, we're told um, 
in Matthew 24, verse 22, that in those days, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And so Jerusalem is central to the the hope of the gospel. And so, you know, the the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 was five months, was, was less than half a year. Whereas when Nebuchadnezzar came down and attacked Jerusalem in um, 589 BC, it took him two and a half years to, to conquer that city. And so what we've been told in this section of scripture in Matthew 24 is that God accelerated the events so that the Jewish people weren't going to be destroyed. So so Jerusalem was was overtaken and sacked, but a great number of the Jews were able to flee and escape. And we know in modern times that Jerusalem has been reunified by the Israelis in the 1967 war, often called the Seven Day War. And um, some of the famous photos there, Ben Gurion walking into the the old wall, um, and then the soldiers overlooking Jerusalem. There, and we know that uh, the Lord says Jerusalem will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles fulfilled. And when you see these things take place, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. And so our redemption again is tied to Jerusalem. But in so much that Jerusalem itself is important from the gospel's perspective, it's also important to the nations. And we recall that um, the Trump administration decided that they would recognize Jerusalem and open as, as the capital of Israel. And they opened up their embassy in Jerusalem itself. And this resulted in a lot of um, hand-wringing and, and upset and worry and concerns. And yet Donald Trump had said he was going to do it, and so he went ahead and, and he did it. But it created some, some huge challenges. And it's interesting that you know the ones who came out most aggressively against this situation was Russia. Putin deeply concerned over US Jerusalem recognition, and he called for a recognition of the United Nations position on Jerusalem, that Jerusalem itself should not be recognized as uh, Israel's capital. And probably one of the few times when he actually thinks that the UN is useful is when it comes to Jerusalem. He seems to ignore them for all the other times. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because he represents the dragon in Revelation, the Eastern Empire. So he's come out and said, this is a really bad idea. We don't like it. And then Europe came out and said they reject Trump's move of the embassy to Jerusalem. They were very upset about this as well. And they represent the beast, the Western half of the Roman system. And you won't be surprised by this, but the Pope came out and said he was also upset about the whole situation. He didn't like the fact that Jerusalem was now being recognized as Israel's capital by the Americans. And he's the false prophet in Revelation. And so the, these, these key antagonists of Israel, which have always been antagonistic, the Roman system, um, as identified in Daniel and as identified in Revelation, is anti anything to do with the Jews. They're anti the ecclesia of God as well, for that matter. And so they rounded up all their mates, got the UN together, and then they denounced US's recognition of Jerusalem 
as Israel's capital. So you can see America voted against, um, and then a number of countries abstained in yellow, and the rest all just jumped on board and said, yep, we totally agree. How dare Donald Trump recognize that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel? And so we can see the scene is being set, can't we, that Jerusalem is, is a bone of contention for the nations and, and they're continually wrangling over this issue of Jerusalem. And it's quite interesting that it's particularly a thought on the side of the Catholic system. The Catholic Church proposed through the UN this idea of corpus separatum, which is just fancy Latin for separated from the body. Um, and they wanted Jerusalem to be an international city to be administered by the United Nations, which the Catholic Church has a significant amount of control over. And you see there, uh, Resolution 181, Independent Arab and Jewish States and the Special International Regime for the City of Jerusalem. And so they wanted to internationalize it um, and, and keep it out of the hands of the Jews. And it's interesting why they wanted to do that. See, one of the problems that the Catholic Church has is that it's it's established itself as God's kingdom on earth. Now, that worked quite well for, what, 12, 1400 years, because the holy city, which was originally Jerusalem, right, is now Rome. And so they could make the argument that, that Jerusalem is no longer a city of importance, that the most important city is Rome, and that the, the mantle of God's providence had moved from Jerusalem and now settled upon on Rome itself. Well, now they've got a problem because the Jews are now back in their ancestral home. And not only that, they occupy Jerusalem. So it's kind of hard to make this argument that God had moved his his focus and his and his, his mantle of grace from Jerusalem to Rome when clearly against all odds. The Jews have now re-established themselves in their historic homeland and also had unified Jerusalem. And so they were, they were very anti the control of Jerusalem. And they've also got some, some other concerns. Like there's a number of holy sites, Christian holy sites, which belong to both the Catholic and the Anglican system located in that, in that city in, in the Greek Orthodox. And so they were worried about um, those things being damaged, although... Um, the, the Jewish state has been very careful to protect and maintain those um, those particular treasures. And it wasn't long after that um, that Jerusalem was recognised by the USA as the capital of Israel that Israel then passed a nation-state law on the 19th of July 2018, which expressly stated that Israel was the national home of the Jewish people. And that, and that this would never be, the Jews would never leave and that they now occupied that territory as their nation state and Jerusalem as their capital and, and no one was going to dig them out. And again, there was a, a huge um, a huge upset about that because they were accusing the Jews, the, the, the Jewish state of instituting a system of apartheid and oppressing the Arabs and, and all this kind of carry on. Um, interestingly enough, though, um, the the Arabs that are in Israel um, are a lot freer, for example, than the Palestinians that are locked inside Gaza under the Gaza administration. 
And so Jerusalem has indeed become this contentious, this contentious issue. And, and anybody who has tried to try and solve that situation has, has, hasn't been unsuccessful. But the real important of this particular verse isn't so much that Jerusalem itself is a cause of contention. It's that those who come about to destroy Jerusalem are going to find that they are cut in pieces. So this is really specific to the events of the siege, the events of those who come, those peoples that come about Jerusalem to attack Jerusalem. And they're going to find that they're going to be cut to ribbons because they've intermeddled with the city. And so the prophet goes on in verse 4 and says, In that day, South Yahweh will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I'll open my eyes upon the house of Judah and I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because he, he identifies these these three groups. You've got the horses, you've got the riders, and you've got the people. And these all pertain to those who come against Jerusalem. And so you've got the leaders, right? the officers, because it's officers that ride horses. You're, you're regular knockabout farm yokel who comes out and is given a leather jerkin and a pitchfork to go and stab people with. He, he's not a leader or, a, or an important person. So it's the leaders and the rulers or the officers that sit upon the horses. And the horses themselves are a bit like a tank. That's how they were used um, prior to, to modern warfare. And so they were machines of war. And so what we're being told here is that the leadership and the war machine that's going to be brought against Israel is going to come to nothing. And you think about that and you think about um, our modern weaponry and our modern systems of war and you wonder how could that possibly be because you know, we've got overwhelmingly advanced technology and incredible capabilities to to uh, to wage war mechanized warfare um, aircraft and bombers and laser guided missiles and you know um, laser guided artillery shells and all this kind of stuff and yet we're being told here that God's going to make that completely defunct. It's not going to be it's going to be of no use whatsoever. Now, there's an interesting thing we know that's going to occur in Jerusalem, and that is the earthquake. One of the problems with earthquakes is they tend to fill roads and, and countrysides with large impassable objects. And so maybe one of the ways that God is going to address this is going to be through that earthquake that is going to create a situation where that infrastructure, that, that machinery is going to be impeded by by the earthquake and, and no doubt other things. Um, there's, there's lots of different ways of knocking out communications. Um, during Desert Storm 1, they had Americans had all these very fancy helicopters, attack helicopters, um, and for three days they were grounded because there was a, a, a dust storm blew across uh, Baghdad and they had to essentially wrap all these very expensive helicopters in plastic because they couldn't get filters fine enough to stop the dust from actually getting into the engines. So, you know, God has has ways of, of addressing these challenges. However that might play out, it's clear that the military system and the political leadership are going to be completely confused. And, and, his, and his good examples um, in Israel's history throughout the kings and into judges where God set different military units against each other or disrupted communications or disrupted their their plans. By comparison, we're told that the governors of Judah shall say in their heart in verse 5, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in Yahweh of armies. 
that's an interesting phrase. The idea of, of governors is is the idea of chief men or, or or captains. So so this is the the military commanders who are scattered throughout Israel and they're looking to Jerusalem for support and they're turning to God. So things are pretty desperate because you know the Jews aren't as a as a population very religious. I think two thirds of um, the Jewish nation are atheists. They don't believe in God at all. Only one third or so um, are actually actually committed believers. And so events at this point have got to the stage where they're now they're now hearing things coming out of Jerusalem, and they're now putting their hope in God Himself. So they've got to the point where they're like. Nothing we've done has been successful. We're not able to repel or to defend ourselves against this overwhelming force. And so they're turning to God, which is really what God wants them to do. This is, in large part, the purpose of these events is to bring Israel, to humble Israel to a point where they will change and that they will accept God. Because in their current state, they certainly aren't interested in, in listening to anything that God has to say. And so in verse 6, again, our phrase, in that day, I'll make the captains of Judah like a hearth of fire amongst the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. And so essentially what we're being told is that Israel is going to become a fire pit and, and God's going to bring all the nations down uh, into into Jerusalem for the purpose of burning them up. It's essentially what we're being told here. Um, and if you come across to Obadiah, there's actually a, a really good parallel um, to this verse, Obadiah chapter 1. There's only one chapter on Obadiah, and it's also one of those really difficult books to find because there's only one chapter and it's intermingled amongst all the other prophets. So Obadiah is a prophecy about Edom. Um, and, and it has a has a future a future context as well as the the literal context of the time. Um, we find that in verse twenty, the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shaphat, shall possess the cities of the south. And so he's talking about a, a period of captivity. And a release from that captivity. It's the, it's the same events we're looking at in Zechariah chapter 12. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. And so this is the establishment of God's kingdom, and it's talking about those who will come and save the nation of Israel. And they're going to appear on Mount Zion, so that's Jerusalem, and they're going to judge the Mount Esau. Now, as we know, Esau was. Jacob's brother, but Esau actually represents a group of people, represents all those nations that hate Jacob, all those nations that hate Israel, because Esau hated Jacob, right? He, he plotted to, to murder him after his father had died. Um, he hated the fact that Jacob had, in his, in his view, tricked him out of his birthright and then stole it from him. And so he was, he was very, very up. Set was very, very angry. We read in verse 16 of this chapter, For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, this is talking to Edom, so shall all the heathen drink continually. So we find in, in Zechariah chapter 12 this idea that 
Jerusalem's going to be like a cup of poison handed to the nations. And here we've got them drinking that cup. And they shall be drunk, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. So, so whatever that is that they're drinking is going to be their destruction. It's going to it's going to destroy them. So it's this very similar ideas that we're seeing in Zechariah chapter uh, chapter twelve. And so continuing in verse eighteen, he says, "The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall be not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it." And so. So the same concept that we find in Zechariah chapter 12 is now being picked up in, in Obadiah about the same events. This Edomite system, this, the, these peoples who have come around Jerusalem to, to lay siege and to destroy it, are now going to be set on fire by the Jews who have been saved by the saints. And so coming back to Zechariah chapter 12, uh, we see there that it's going to be the work of Yahweh. It's going to be the work of God that does this. And so the, the battle all but seems to have been lost. Israel is is now defeated. Um, the people, the nation of Israel are now fleeing into Jordan, those that can escape. Jerusalem is basically locked down and and the, the Russian confederacy are now going door to door hunting for any remaining Jews and dragging them out and shooting them. Right? So same same events that occurred in the night during World War II when the Germans went through their cities and hunted down and found all the hiding places of the Jews and rounded them up. <coughs> we know what the situation was there, don't we? That they were they were murdered by that evil system. And so Israel here is presented as a fireplace. We also find the same idea in Ezekiel 39, verse 9 to 10, where it talks about Israel burning all the weapons of the nations that they brought down to attack them with, um, and that there was no need for firewood for, for months and months and months because they had all this, all this fuel that had come from these nations. And so Israel is going to be a place of fire and a place of judgment where God is going to contend with those nations. And we're told in verse 7 that Yahweh will save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem does not magnify themselves against Judah. Now, often we, we refer to this, or I've heard this, this verse referred to as, as having a present-day fulfillment. And in many respects, there is a present-day fulfillment because Judah, inverted commas, or, or this, um, this phrase, I guess, or this label, has been applied to the Jews that are in the land today. And so there is certainly a partial fulfillment of, of a restoration of the tents of Judah. But it's important to remember that this is in the context of the siege. This is in the context of the inhabitants of Jerusalem during the siege period. And so what we're being told here is that it's those who have fled or fled, fled, fled from the advancing armies or have managed to escape during the ensuing war into Jordan who are going to be rescued first, who are going to be saved first. And so we find that in um, Isaiah chapter 63, if you come across to Isaiah 63, we're, we're told how it is that 
Christ and the saints are going to come into the land and rescue the Jews. Uh, Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 verse 1, he says, Who is this that comes from Edom? Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in your apparel, in your garments, like him that treads in the wine vat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. And so we've got this picture of, of Yahweh coming up from Edom into Bosra. So this, this area here is Bosra, and, and Christ and the saints are going to come up, and they're going to... Um, subjugate or i guess rescue in many respects the the area of jordan and and part of the area of saudi arabia which is where all these jews will have fled they'll, they'll have escaped um to the east because obviously they can't escape to the to the west because that's the ocean they can't go north because that's where the enemy is and they can't go south because russia's already taken over egypt at this point we find that in um in daniel chapter 11 and so christ is going to come up out of the Sinai, after the judgment seat, he's going to come up through Edom and into Bosra. And he and he's and he and it's saying there that his his garments are dyed red from conflict. And then we find that he is going to go into Israel and rescue the Jews in the land and save Jerusalem itself. And and how he does that's revealed to us in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 1 to 13 where we were taught we we learn about the great earthquake on the mount of olives and so Christ is going to come in from the south come essentially take the same path that uh, Moses and Joshua took to come into Jerusalem and into the land of Israel to redeem the people of Israel so coming back to Zechariah chapter 12 We read there that in that day shall Yahweh defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and that and he that is feeble amongst them in that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be as God as the angel of Yahweh before him. And so we're being told here that Christ and the saints are going to strengthen and support and enable the survivors, those remaining um, Israelis that have, have managed to hold on. The idea there of um of feeble has the idea of one who is faint, one who is stumbling, you know, on the edge of giving up. You know, they've, they've been so beaten and so so destroyed to the point where they're like, there's just no hope. There's you know, resistance bands, you know, little groups of militias who are taking pot shots at at the at the, um, the European and Russian military, and and they're essentially on their last legs. They're like, this is you know. It's over. We've lost our nation. The Jewish experiment is over. You know, there's no hope. And yet, this power that's come up from Edom and come into the land re-energizes them, and 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 they and and they become like super 
soldiers. You know, David was a mighty warrior. He was a brilliant tactician. He was fearless before the enemy. And so they're just like that. You know, the, um, David's advisor to Absalom, you know, he says to him, look, you, you don't want to go messing with David because David's a crazy person. Like, he's just a machine. You know, he, do, you, do you really want to go and pursue him now? Like, he's like a bear who's been robbed of his wealth. Like, he, he's looking for a fight. You want to wait. And so that was that was the uh, reputation that David had. And so we're being told here that the support that that God is going to provide the Jews is going to re-energize them and re-enable them and help them to overthrow the the Russian and European aggressors and evict them out of the nation itself. And it come, shall come to pass, he says in verse 9, in that day, it's our phrase again, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To seek to destroy. It's got the idea of a search and destroy mission. So just as they have gone through the nation of, of, of Israel and through Jerusalem, hunting down any remaining Jews, to kill them and to, and to, and to evict them from uh, their, their homeland. So God is going to hunt them down and he's going to find them in all their holes and all their crags and all their hiding places and he's going to drag them out and he's going to pronounce his justice upon them. Now, probably familiar with this chap, Saddam Hussein, managed to elude the uh, coalition forces for, for quite some time. And he was hiding in a hole, basically dug himself a pit and managed to, to secret himself. And that's the same thing that's going to happen um, in these events and in Israel. You know, the tide is going to turn, and it's going to turn so quickly that all those military personnel and all those, all those military leaders are just going to try and find any place they can possibly find to hide. Not dissimilar um, to the kings that, that Joshua pursued uh, in the northern campaign. They all found caves to hide in, to secret themselves, to try and avoid the, the unstoppable might of Joshua and his military. <clears throat> and that's a type, isn't it, of Christ and the saints going forth to remove all of the offending Gentiles out of Israel itself. And so we've got this small group then left of, of the tents of Judah. Um, one third of the nation is remaining, and, and, and they have turned to God, and, and they are now in a, in a place and in a state where they can repent and turn back to God. And so in verse 10 through to the end of this chapter, we, we have this outpouring and this change in the nation. It says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. It's also interesting that it's the same group, the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in verse 13, to whom is opened a fountain for sin and for uncleanliness. And so God extends, or Jesus extends mercy and compassion to them. And, and they come to him and, and they don't really know who he is. They're still trying to work out what's happened. This has just been an insane period of time. <clears throat> One minute they've been overwhelmed by these military, these militaries. They've fought as hard as they can. They've lost friends and family. 
they're completely devastated and washed out and then suddenly the whole thing just seems to turn on its head this new force comes out of nowhere where did these people come from? they came from jordan um they're a specialized military force and they can do amazing things and and and, and they've been helping us and and they bring back the the jews that have fled from jordan they bring them back into the land and they've enabled them and and um <clears throat> turned them into you know superheroes and and they've rolled back all of the military and they've defeated these these overwhelming numbers and they're like who are you like where did where did you come from and who are you and he says there that they will look upon whom they have pierced and then they'll understand they'll understand the purpose of all of this that it was to bring them to an appreciation of their messiah the messiah that their great 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 grandfathers had put to death on a cross and they're going to be absolutely cut to the heart just as those nations have been torn to pieces by jerusalem they're now going to be torn to pieces over how foolish and wicked they've been and they're suddenly going to realize that this is the one this is the messiah and so we're told there that they will be in bitterness for as though it had been their firstborn son so there's going to be a huge huge national outpouring of grief and sorrow so much so um that that it's going to it's going to be greater than the mourning for josiah so hadad rimmon was the events in relation to josiah who was that great um reformer who was going to take the nation to, to new heights and he was cut off in his prime and so they're going to separate themselves one from another verse 12 and 13 and 14 and it's interesting isn't it because they separate themselves along some interesting lines you've got the family of david so that's the that's the kingly family that's the ruler family that's the secular rulers you've got um uh shimei who was a levite so that's the priestly group that's the religious leaders and then you've got nathan who was the prophet so now um you've got the key influences right people who are not in the rulership team and people who are not in the religious leadership group but influence the nation that have huge influence over the nation and, and sadly today in israel many of their prophets are false prophets preaching false doctrines and false ideas and then lastly in verse 14 you've got the common people and and they're all going to separate themselves as individuals without any form of comfort and they're just going to mourn and, and the reason it's broken up into prophet priest and king and, and the common people is because they are all responsible they are all guilty they all identify that that the problem was them and they're going to mourn and 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 be very very um upset and depressed over this and yet we're told in chapter 13 and in verse 1 in that day once again our phrase there shall be open to the house of david and to the inhabitants of jerusalem for sin and uncleanness a fountain and so there'll be a basis or, or the means by which the nation will be forgiven and it's interesting that it's the house of 
David. It's not the house of Nathan, the house of Shimei, and the house of David. It's the house of David who is, is why this fountain is opened. And so why the house of David? Why, why not these other, these other groups? Well, it's because the greater than David, the true king of Israel is now in the land. And, and it's on, on that basis and for his sake that the nation will then be forgiven and, and restored to Yahweh. But it's going to come at a very, very high cost. And so although the story ends positively, and, and we know that Israel is going to be restored and brought back to God, um, there are going to be some very, very dark days and some huge challenges for Israel, and not just Israel, for all the nations. Yahweh has a contention with all all the nations, and he is going to demonstrate his power and his glory um, in both the Gogan host, the Russian host, but also um, through the Jewish nation itself.